Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 67, Armageddon. In this episode, it's war. War between Egypt and the people of Canaan, as Tutmos must attack and defeat a rebellion against his imperial authority. Powerful interest groups are forming against Egyptian domination of Canaan and Lebanon, and the fragile Egyptian empire may fall before it even gets off the ground. This episode is brought to you by Dave Ewanchuk, Thomas Roll, and Brenda Wass. Your support keeps the show running, folks. Thank you very much. Today's episode takes place entirely over a one-month period, from April to May, 1473 BCE. It was the Egyptian spring, about two to three months after the death of Hatshepsut. When we pick up our story, Tutmos III is once again the sole ruler of Egypt. He is about 25 years old, and he has been the theoretical ruler of the Nile Valley for 22 years. But when his aunt slash stepmother died, and he took power on his own initiative, Tutmos III was faced pretty quickly with a crisis, the result of which was the first battle that might be called the Battle of Armageddon. Armageddon comes from the ancient Har Megiddo. Har Megiddo refers to a place, the Tel El Megiddo. This is a hilltop town in northern Canaan or Israel. And according to the Bible, It is the location of the final doomsday battle between good and evil. Hence, Har Megiddo, or Armageddon, has become a byword for cataclysmic conflict and world-changing violence. The stories of the battles that took place at this location could and do fill up entire books. But we're just focusing on one, Tutmos III's version of Armageddon, a great conflict that changed his world. So, strap yourselves in, it's a wild ride. The Battle of Megiddo was sparked when Tutmos III, freshly comfortable on his throne, received a message from his foreign dominions. The message was simple, but alarming. Cities and soldiers living in the north of what is now Israel, near Mount Carmel, were no longer sending tribute. What was worse, an outsider was spreading influence among them, forming a coalition. If something was not done, rebellion might be imminent. The trouble centred around the town of Kadesh, which had become a minor but significant power in the region. To the south of Kadesh, the lands and communities under Egyptian influence seemed ripe for extortion. Egypt was far away, Kadesh was near, so the communities were persuaded, or compelled, to send their tribute, their Baku, not to Egypt, but to Kadesh. The result was that Kadesh was essentially forming a coalition around itself in order to attack Egypt's vassal states. Now this wasn't necessarily a terrible threat to Tutmos, but ideologically, 
it was completely unacceptable. Left unchecked, they would take Egyptian vassals away from Tutmos, and so come to dominate the regions of Lebanon and northern Canaan. Effectively, they were attacking the Egyptian empire, and the prestige of Egypt's king. By extension, they were attacking Egypt itself. Now, scholars argue naturally over how feasible it was that this coalition could have possibly posed a genuine military threat to the Nile Valley, but for my money they're kind of skipping around the point. The fact is, people who were loyal to Egypt formerly, who had been subjugated by an Egyptian king formerly and given their obedience, were now effectively rebelling. Now, if you've been paying attention to the podcast so far, you'll know what the Egyptian attitude to rebellions was. Tatmos immediately began to prepare for war, and in just a few short weeks, he was ready to march against his enemies. As he prepared and set out, Tatmos did something unusual but fantastic. He kept a daily diary of his activities, and eventually, this diary, which we call the War Diaries, was transformed into a monumental text on the walls of Karnak, which we call the Battle of Megiddo. So without further ado, it's time for battle. Tutmos gathered what forces were available to him on short notice. This probably numbered no more than one or two thousand men. A small army, but it would have to do. Anything else would require a longer time of conscription, and that gave the enemy more and more advantage. So Tutmos left Egypt within weeks of receiving the news. He gathered his bodyguard and his forces at the edge of the Nile Delta, and set out across the Sinai Peninsula. He left the Nile Delta at the head of a picked company of soldiers, men whose families were in the business of warfare, and who had a pedigree of fathers and grandfathers in military service. These were the Iwayut, the household troops of the king, Tutmos's loyal band. In effect, they were the core of Egypt's military personnel. They were loyal, they were trained, and they were professional. Tutmos was in good company. Despite the relatively small size of his army, about 1,500 or 2,000 men, it would be enough to do the job, as long as the job wasn't too difficult. The average Egyptian soldier at this time travelled somewhat light. They had a carrying pole on their back, on which they attached a bottle made of leather, jars of water, and 20 loaves of bread for every day. Behind the army came donkeys and asses. They carried the extra necessities, like tents, military equipment, and extra sandals. The road was not exactly what you'd call modern, or even in the Roman sense. It was basically a dirt road that had been slowly worn down by generations of travellers. So, when the men travelled across on their bare, thin sandals, they were not exactly comfortable. Sandals wore through quickly with the stones, and men would occasionally suffer bruised ankles or even breakages. Considering the dangers of ancient roads, the Egyptian army made a stunning progress. They covered 125 miles from the delta to the town of Gaza in just 10 days. As they were passing, the new year came and went. They were now into the 23rd regnal year of Tutmos III. Whether they celebrated the anniversary of his accession or not is unfortunately not told to us. It's entirely possible that Tutmos decided to forego celebrations, given the urgency of the situation. Either way, he arrived at Gaza, what the Egyptians called Jahi, with time to spare, 
and still with no knowledge of his advance on the part of the enemy. The enemy was not strong just yet. Tutmos had left Egypt and arrived in Canaan during the start of the harvest season. This was not a problem to him because his troops were professionals, they earned their living by fighting. But in Canaan, 99% of warriors were still farmers or merchants or craftsmen most of the time. While the Canaanite nobles might be ready for warfare, they would still have to wait for all their soldiers to come in from the farmlands. Tutmos was free of this shackle, and he took advantage of it. By the time he arrived in Gaza, he was well ahead of what the enemy expected of him. Tutmos let his troops rest in Gaza for a day. They had travelled quickly, and they needed a little bit of recuperation. While he was there, Tutmos spoke to the troops in the Gaza region, who manned a series of fortresses designed to protect the borders of Egypt. From this, he learned the general gist of where the enemy was. They were up near Kadesh, and most importantly, near the town of Megiddo. So, he planned his advance accordingly. The Egyptians were now entering into more dangerous territory, and so Tutmos decided that they would march a bit more slowly. Even though speed and time were of the essence, it was still necessary to keep the army all in one piece, and to avoid running into any ambushes. So, Tutmos chose to go more slowly so that scouts could figure out what was actually happening up ahead of him. This was a sensible precaution. More time gave Tutmos greater comfort to plan his strategy, and a slower advance made the troops more confident that they weren't marching headlong into some kind of ambush. Remembering how important morale is when you're taking 2,000 men into foreign territory, I'd say Tutmos had made the right decision. After a day's rest at Gaza, Tutmos and his troops set out. It was the first month of the harvest season, day 5, in regnal year 23. The Egyptians spent the next 11 days on the march. Moving more carefully than before, they advanced northwards towards the town called Yahem. Here they stopped on day 16 of that month. It was now approximately the first week of May, and Tutmos now had to stop. The Egyptians were near to the town of Megiddo, and this, it seemed, was the focal point of the enemy's efforts. Nobles were gathering from around the Canaanite region, and this was the best place for Tutmos to attack, in order to overthrow the coalition against him. Tutmos stopped in Yahim for a few days, in order to take stock of the situation, and to prepare his plans. The ultimate goal was obvious, attack and take the town of Megiddo, preferably capturing or killing as many of the enemy who were inside it as possible. But the Egyptians were faced with a couple of dilemmas, and so Tutmos called a war council with his foremost generals in order to consider the situation. According to the annals, which admittedly were written on the walls of Karnak about 20 years after the event, Tutmos III addressed his generals thus. He said, quote, That cowardly enemy of Kadesh has come and has entered Megiddo. He is there at this very moment, having gathered to himself the chiefs of all the foreign lands that used to be loyal to Egypt, together with those lands as far as Mitanni, as Syria, as Kedu. Their horses, their armies, and their peoples are here. And he is saying, reportedly, I stand ready to fight against his majesty here in Megiddo. Tell me, generals, what is in your mind? The problem in general was this. There were three ways to reach Megiddo from their current position. To the north and south, there were wide valleys that the Egyptians could advance through fairly easily. Admittedly, 
the enemy had positioned battalions at both of these points in order to guard them against the obvious attack. In the centre, there was another route, and this was unguarded as far as they knew. But the central route had a problem. It was incredibly narrow, and at certain points, the men and horses would have to be going single file. The chariots would have to be carried through. This route presented an extreme danger. What if the enemy knew about it, and they laid an ambush, the army would be cut to ribbons. But the central route, while being incredibly dangerous, also came out right on top of Megiddo, so tactically it would give them an advantage. The question was, how to approach? Tutmose's generals, we are told, were cautious. They complained of the narrowness of the pass, of the fact that the men and horses would have to go single file. They suggested that for all they knew, the enemy might be waiting at the other end, just hoping they would make this mistake. If that happened, the battle would not be a battle at all, but a bloodbath, as the men would be cut down in the canyon, unable to form up into their battalions. Tutmose, of course, laughed in the face of danger. He had Amun on his side, and he knew that this was the right course. Naturally, the story has been embellished over time, and slowly drifted away from the factual reality. For all we know, there was a spirited debate on the issue between different groups of generals, some of whom may have said, take the north or south pass, and some of whom may have said, take the central. What we are told is that Tutmos decided on the central route, the most dangerous route. He was going to gamble everything on advancing on Megiddo before the enemy realised what he was doing. The morning after the council, approximately May 18th, the king's army left the town of Yahim and moved as close as they could to that central canyon. They camped overnight at a nearby village, and then, on the first month of the harvest season, day 19, regnal year 23, they woke up and began to prepare for the final advance. They were now moving on Megiddo. What lay ahead would be either total victory or crushing bloody defeat. world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. There is an old saying, alia iacta est. Roughly translated from the Latin, it means... Let the dice fly, or, in our modern version, let the chips fall where they may. This gambling term, let the dice fly, 
was supposedly uttered by one Gaius Julius Caesar as he urged his horse to splash its way into the shallow waters of the Rubicon River. By entering this river, armed and backed by an army, Caesar had committed himself irrevocably to a war against the state of Rome itself. The saying recognised the extreme unpredictability of the immediate future. What would happen next was, at the time, anyone's guess. I wonder if Tutmos had anything of a similar nature to say as his army left the camp. The pre-dawn gloom would have been oppressive, the night still cold, the sky dark and full of stars. Behind the escarpments of the mountain range, a range to which his troops were marching, there was the fateful dawn and the town of Megiddo. Tutmos had gambled, no question. He had overridden his general's suggestions, and chosen the most dangerous, but most direct, path towards the enemy. In effect, he had pulled a Rubicon. He had committed to a dangerous and unpredictable course of action. What would happen next was in the lap of the gods. Good thing Tutmos had a god on his side, right? Well, even Amun-Ra wasn't going to fight this battle for him. It was all on the men and on the king. The troops left their camp, marching in quiet order. Even so, the noise would have been great, as a thousand pairs of sandaled feet began to slap on the dusty ground, and chariot axles creaked, horses wickering. The army was on the move, and the dice were, figuratively, cast. As the vanguard of Egyptian infantry, spearmen and bowmen, entered the mountain pass, their road became progressively narrower. At first it was wide enough for ten, but then that narrowed, wide enough for five, and then it narrowed again. Finally, the men, horses, and chariots were moving single file through the canyon as the sun rose progressively higher overhead. To his utmost and eternal credit, Tutmos marched at the head of his army. He probably wasn't exactly the first guy in front, but surrounded by his bodyguard, he was moving at the head of the column. Now, this generally was what was expected of a king in battle, but this is one of the few situations where we are fairly confident the king actually followed through on that. We are told in the account that Tutmos chose not to remain behind as his troops entered the canyon, but instead to move out at their head. This was an important symbolic act. Tutmos recognised the danger of what he was putting his men into, and, like a good king, like a good Horus, he decided to face that danger first, to be at the vanguard of any assault. It must have been a nervous few hours, because as the Egyptian army began to move into single file, the pace of advance slowed to a creep. The Egyptian column soon became silent, as pre-battle nerves began to take hold of the men. Perhaps Tutmos tried to put a good face on things, but there was no denying, the army was in extreme danger. Had the enemy been alerted to what they were doing? Were they even now gathering their forces at the mouth of this pass in order to swoop down with their chariots and their archers and infantry and slaughter them all as they emerged bedraggled from the canyon? No one knew what was ahead. The men marched in silence. The passage of one and a half to two thousand men through such a narrow canyonway took many hours. Finally, Tutmos and his advance guard emerged onto the plains of Megiddo. Ahead of them, the fortress loomed high on its hilltop. To the south of the town, a camp had spread out, where the enemy nobility were gathering their chariots and their infantry slowly. But 
No armed forces waited for the Egyptians at the mouth of this pass. They had done it. They had stolen a march on the enemy, and even now their strength was growing as men began to emerge from the passageway safe and sound. Tutmos had pulled off his gamble. Fortunately for Tutmos, the enemy had not noticed his approach. Perhaps they had simply assumed that the Egyptians would go north or south, or they simply did not consider that anyone in their right mind would take that narrow central pass. Either way, they were caught on the back foot. Tutmos's army began to fill the plains before Megiddo, and the king knew that time was of the essence. Fortunately, the day was now too far advanced for the enemy to attack right away. Furthermore, they needed time to recall their battalions who were waiting at the northern and southern passes in order to face Tutmos with their full force. The king had an advantage, and he had gained his breathing space. The Egyptian army now turned south to move atop a ridge on a plateau. This was just south of the town of Megiddo and the enemy camp, and this was where Tutmos decided to set up his headquarters. From here, the Egyptian army could launch its assault on Megiddo on the following day. On the night before the battle, the Egyptian soldiers took their rest. Officers went amongst them, saying, quote, Be steadfast, be steadfast, be vigilant, be vigilant. The king and his generals took care of official business. They distributed rations so that the men would have full bellies and be extra energetic and enthusiastic on the following day. Finally, the officers said, Prepare yourselves, sharpen your weapons, for battle is about to be joined with that cowardly enemy at daybreak. Daybreak came on day 21 of the first month of the harvest season in regnal year 23 of the III. It was a spring day, and the enemy was now ready for battle. There are some suggestions that the enemy and Tutmos might have actually agreed to have the battle on this day, so that everything could be done in accordance with rituals and with the divine obligations. Naturally, sacrifices would be made by the priests among the army, and the troops would say their prayers to whichever gods they particularly favoured. Finally, they moved out of their respective camps and lined up for battle. Tutmos's 2,000 men included mostly spearmen, archers, and a small body of chariotry. The enemy force, meanwhile, had relatively few infantry, and were relying on their elite charioteers, called the Marianu, in order to overwhelm the Egyptian resistance. In order to defeat the enemy, Tutmos had to neutralize those Marianu chariots. The best way to neutralize the chariots was to squeeze them, to push them into a narrower and narrower space until they could no longer maneuver properly. Chariot warfare was quite different from what you see in movies. If you watch a film like Troy, Alexander, or the Ten Commandments, you will see the chariots used like they were knights. They race full tilt towards the enemy and slam like a tsunami into the ranks. The result is always the same. Horses die, skewered by spears or arrows. Men are thrown off to fly dramatically into the ranks of their enemies. Or the chariot itself crashes and overturns, collapsing like some kind of NASCAR accident. It's all very kinetic, very violent, and very mistaken. The problem with a chariot charge is that, on screen, it looks awesome, and it gets the audience's blood pumping. But it completely negates the genuine advantage and threat that chariots actually possessed. 
In battle, chariots did not act like tanks, smashing into a strong point to break a line. They were more like sports cars, with a machine gun on the back. Light, sure, but fast, much faster than you or I. The chariots would sweep past a line of infantry, the noise of their wheels thundering in the ears of already nervous men. They would curve around a formation if they could, and rattle past the men's backs, and they would pull back quickly if anyone tried to advance on them. All the while, the soldier in the cart would be firing, firing arrows, firing javelins, and firing stones. Chariots were mobile shooting platforms, and nobody could catch them. The Egyptians at Megiddo were advancing against a force of nearly 1,000 of these battle vehicles. This was both a terrifying prospect, but also a problem for the enemy. There were so many Marianu charioteers that there was not enough room for them all to manoeuvre properly. The enemy would have to rotate them, withdrawing one section and sending in a new one. Done properly, this could become a devastating cycle of fresh soldiers coming in, withdrawing, rearming, and then returning done improperly, well... To the eternal luck of the Egyptians, the Marianu were not operating in ideal territory. They were on a hilltop, attacking downward, which would make their momentum uncontrollably strong. Axles would break, horses might break their legs, and men would occasionally be flung out. In effect, the Egyptians had caught them off guard with the advance, and now the strongest element of the Canaanite army was operating at a disadvantage. Tutmos recognised this, and he made his plans accordingly. The result was that when battle was joined, Tutmos pushed hard in the centre with his own chariots. He engaged the enemy chariots directly, as strongly as he could, in order to pin them down as much as possible. To the right and left of Tutmos, his infantry, his spearmen and archers, began to push forward. The Egyptians were moving uphill, which was harder for them, but because they had more spears and archers than the enemy did, they were slowly able to push the enemy chariots back and back. The Marianu tried to stay out of range of the spears and archers, in order to cause the maximum damage with the fewest casualties. But they could only do so much against such a pressing movement. Tutmos and his chariots in the centre were hammering at them, and they could not necessarily get away quickly enough. To the right and left, the Egyptian spearmen and archers kept coming. Arrows flew at the Canaanite ranks, and they were occasionally successful at picking off a man here and there. Arrows do not necessarily kill en masse, but they are a constant harassment and a threat. If you see a man next to you go down with an arrow in his throat or his face, that is terrifying. The Egyptians were pushing hard on this. Spears were now rattling in the faces of horses, and the chariots were pulling back as quickly as they could. Again, like with chariot warfare, Bronze Age line battles were a slightly different affair than we see on the screen. Men usually do not run screaming into a line of the enemy. There were no epic charges that pushed deep into the enemy ranks, and then devolved into a confusing, shaky cam view of blood and violence. Instead, the two sides acted more like a pair of boxers, they sparred, jabbed at each other, and tried to taunt or invite an opening. Ancient line battles were generally dominated by the two sides standing a few metres apart. Close, but not too close. From this point, they would throw stones or javelins at one another, and, of course, engage in the classic ancient game of taunting.
strange person. Now, look here, my good man. I don't want to talk to you no more, you empty-headed animal food trough whopper. I fart in your general direction. Your mother was a hamster, and your father smelt of elderberries. The line of battle was a bit more serious than that, of course, but you get the point. The battles of the ancient world involved far more back and forth than you might think. Usually, a full-on charge only occurred when there was either overwhelming superiority on one side, or a weakness developing in the enemy ranks. A weakness that might conceivably break with a strong attack. This was the situation that Tutmose's infantry soon found themselves in. The enemy chariot was certainly a deadly threat, but as the Egyptian infantry moved forward, the chariots were running out of space. A weakness was developing. Now, as Tutmos and his chariots pushed forward in the centre, the Egyptian infantry began a full-on charge. At this point, the chariot resistance could not keep up. As the Marianu looked around them, they saw on two sides Egyptian infantry and archers pushing closer and closer and advancing steadily up the hill. Their tactics, while effective, were not carrying the day and eventually the Marianu commanders realised that the situation was going very badly. At this point, the Canaanite chariots began to withdraw. But riding uphill is difficult, especially when you're carrying a chariot with you. The chariot axles would occasionally break on the rough ground, and the horses would struggle to get the men up fast enough. Remembering that there are spears and arrows at their back, eventually the Canaanite charioteers abandoned their chariots entirely, they got off on foot and began to run back towards the city of Megiddo. The Egyptian soldiers whooped with joy. Their fears were beginning to dispel. They were on the brink of victory, and they began to march forward quickly. Tutmos, in the centre, was jubilant. His strategy, his tactics had paid off, and all of his gambles had come to fruition. The enemy was now in full flight back towards the city of Megiddo, and the Egyptians were free to pursue them at their leisure. But the fight was not over just yet. With the Canaanites in full flight, the Battle of Megiddo was effectively won. At this point, Tutmos diverges to tell a small anecdote. He notes gloatingly how the enemy was so overcome by panic that they retreated full flight towards the city. But once the gates were shut, many of them were trapped outside, and some of them, including some of the leaders, had to be hoisted up the walls, carried by sheets and linen flung over the sides. Effectively, the enemy had to scramble back into their own city like rodents. But now, a problem had developed. In the confusion of the fight, two unfortunate things had occurred. Firstly, the gates had closed, barring any entrance. Secondly, the Marianu and the elite leaders had made their way inside the city. Furthermore, the Egyptian army had been sidetracked. As the troops rushed after their enemies, they came across the enemy's camp. This had been abandoned in the rout, and it now lay open for the taking. 
Chariots, weapons, servants, and all the various trinkets that nobility carry with them were ripe for the plunder. And plunder the Egyptians did. A huge portion of the Egyptian vanguard fell to looting the enemy camp mercilessly, with their foes running towards the fortress, and gold just lying around for the taking, their instincts took over, and they abandoned their pursuit. In so doing, they may have cost Tutmos the total victory. The king in his chariot came up to the fortress enraged. The gates had shut, and the leaders had escaped inside. This ensured that a siege would now have to be pursued, and a total victory had been snatched from his hands. The cause of the failure was apparent. The hereditary soldiers, their arms loaded with plunder, were emerging from the enemy's camp. I can only imagine their faces when they saw what had happened. It's hard to get a reliable estimate of how many warriors and charioteers fought at the Battle of Megiddo. I've read estimates that range from 500 men per side to 15,000 men per side. Recently, the scholarly trend has settled on somewhere between 1,500 and 5,000 men on each side. I've taken the smaller number, just to be safe. The problem is that Tutmose's war tally records very few enemy dead, just 83 of them. There were huge numbers of captives, plenty of them, but very few enemy casualties. One thing we do know, and this makes sense in the context, is that the Egyptians captured nearly all of the enemy's chariots, 924 of them to be exact. Which seems on the money, given that the enemy fled into the city, sometimes having to climb the walls. When the gates were closing and the walls were high, chariots became more burden than was worth it. Regardless of how many dead, the problem now facing Tutmos was significant. The gates of Megiddo were closed, the walls were high and strong. Taking the city was going to cost a lot of lives. Tutmos did not want to waste the lives of so many men. The cost would be extreme and would undermine any future efforts to pacify the region of Canaan. Remember, these were not just farmer soldiers gathered up from the fields. These were the closest thing Egypt had to professional soldiers. They were a new class of regular warriors, skilled and strong, but still a very small group. Their lives were not thrown away lightly. So Tutmos did what he had to do in this situation. He ordered that a siege begin. From mid-May, the Egyptians set up a perimeter all the way around the hill of Megiddo. They dug a ditch and put up a palisade made from wood that they apparently had taken from the enemy's own orchards. Kind of a big F.U. to the people of Megiddo. Defeated in battle, they now had to watch from the walls as their orchards, their livelihood, were cut down and put to work on their own destruction. Within a few days or weeks, the work was complete. Access to Megiddo was now blocked. No one was getting in. So the Egyptians settled down to wait. And wait they did, for seven long months. The town of Megiddo was well fortified, and it had a water spring in one of its sides. Archaeology suggests that the walls were thick enough to repel any direct attack, and there were two towers to overlook any approach. Essentially, the people within Megiddo were perfectly safe from a direct assault. As long as they had enough food and water, they could resist indefinitely. Well, water they had, but food? Eventually that was going to run out. Fortunately, no help came to Megiddo. With the enemy of Kadesh and the chieftains of Megiddo itself either trapped inside or slain, the coalition collapsed. Even though Kadesh had some powerful backers, and I'll talk about them in the next episode, 
Those backers could not gather a response in time. Just like the Canaanites, they had their own harvest to attend to during May, and then they would have to begin planting. So Tutmose's army was in luck. Now that they had the victory, they could simply wait the enemy out. And so they did. Tutmose himself left Megiddo soon after the battle was won. With a picked company of soldiers, he headed back towards Egypt in order to fulfill his obligations back home. Behind him, the army of the king remained in camp, led by a general. They waited, watched, and guarded. The final defeat and surrender of Megiddo is a story for the next episode. For now, we must finish here. But worry not, dear listener, for I have also put together a supplement episode in which I read the tale of the Battle of Megiddo in full from beginning to end. I've also added some commentary and context, and there are some guest speakers to play the little parts of the various characters. That episode will be going up in the next few days. Keep an eye out. For now, it is time to say goodbye. The Battle of Megiddo has been won. The enemy of Kadesh and his coalition partners are besieged within the town. Tutmose is returning home to Egypt to oversee the harvest and the tax, and to gather more soldiers together. For as soon as he can, Tutmose is coming back to Canaan. The work is far from over, and the war has really only just begun. Fade to black, string music rises, and... The History of Egypt podcast, or the Egyptian History podcast, whatever you want to call it, has a few more episodes in it before we go down for our annual hiatus over the Christmas break. There'll be a month-long gap from about the middle of December to the last week of January. Meanwhile, we have a new website. It's still egyptianhistorypodcast.com, but it's been given a glossy new finish and it looks much cooler. Go visit it. Also, as usual, we're going to give a shout-out to our Agora Podcast Network Featured Podcast of the Month. Wittenberg to Westphalia is the story of early modern Europe during the Wars of the Reformation and up to the Treaty of Westphalia. It is a fascinating story, and one that not many historians tend to focus on, so I'm quite excited that there's a podcast about this. Personally, I find the early modern history of Germany in particular absolutely fascinating. The development of a bunch of different states into a sort of cohesive political entity is really one of the most remarkable things that's come out of the last few hundred years in that particular region of the world. Anyways, there's a lot of religion, war, sex, violence, diplomacy, politics, and all that kind of jazz, and it's really quite an entertaining tale. Go over and check it out. That's Wittenberg to Westphalia, the podcast. Finally, If you're enjoying the podcast and we continue to meet your expectations whenever we release a new episode, I know, they're not quite as regular as we would like, but I'm doing my best. Anyway, if you feel the show is meeting your expectations or is entertaining you, and you feel like it might be worth a dollar, we would love to have any help you might have. Go over to EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com and click on the heading Support the Show. 
You can donate via PayPal, and there are many ways to do so. Thank you so much for any support, and to all of our listeners, I hope you continue to enjoy this. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.